Welcome to another episode of Skirt Show. We are recording, as always, on Instagram Live. I'm your host, Nick Skirtfield. If you're watching on Instagram, that's obvious. Uh, but if you're listening later on iTunes or Spotify, uh, we're very happy to be joined today by the legend, King of Trill, Bun B. How you doing, Bun? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on the Skirt Show. Absolutely, man. Uh, you know, Bun, you're one of the biggest sports fans that I know. Uh, I know you've been on First Take multiple times on ESPN, dropping some knowledge, and you're a member of the, the Brand Jordan family, right? Yeah. From And um, so I'm really excited to talk with you about The Last Dance. Uh, we're going to review the show, the Michael Jordan series, of course, it just aired. Uh, we're also going to get into what you've been doing during COVID-19, how you've been staying positive, how you've been staying busy. And also um, at the end, we're going to review some of your classic UGK songs, which I'm really excited to talk with you about as well. Okay. So uh, we will open it up. I'm going to try to open it up for a Q&A. Uh, if you have questions for Bun, uh, put them in on the little question box in the bottom. We'll try and get to some at the end of the show if we have time. Um, and again, um, just a brief introduction on the podcast. We started this a few weeks ago. Uh, our goal is to spread some positivity. We're talking with business owners and friends, um, trying to find some silver linings and everything that's been going on. So uh, you can find the full episodes on iTunes, Spotify, uh, also on YouTube as well. So subscribe, leave us a review, let us know what you think. Uh, and again, Bun, thanks for being on, man. I know you're staying busy. So. No, it's all good, man. Happy to be here, bro. So I want to start uh, before we get into the last dance, and I know you um, uh, you just finished all the episodes last night, right? Yeah. On that, so uh, I got my Michael Jordan shirt on. That I gotta show this off. I got this at a sunny flea market one day, uh, which I posted on Instagram. But had to dress for okay. the occasion. <laughs> um, but before we get into the show, I did want to talk about what you've been doing uh, these past few weeks. Uh, I saw that you were just in Marfa. Posting a lot of pictures on your Instagram. You've been recording a bunch of songs. Um, what have you been doing during this time to stay busy? Just trying to be as productive as possible, right? Like the majority of, of my business is performances, right? And so that's something that we probably won't be able to do for a while. Like I don't see me doing any concerts this year at all because of the nature of social distancing, right? It's, it's kind of uh, contrary to what a concert or a festival is all about. But <clears throat> I do have other things that I can do. I think, um, you know, still recording music and releasing music is something that's available to me right now. So just trying to stay focused on that. But you got to be smart about that kind of thing. So uh, I've been um, over the last couple of weeks working on putting together like a studio at the crib mm. to record. But a good friend of mine, Dave Satek, Dave is from um, TV on the radio, right? He goes out to this place in El Paso that's on like um it's on like three thousand acres, right? And it's in a it's in a real small town, Tornillo, Texas. Um, you know, the town only has like fifteen hundred people, so it's a it's an isolated kind of place. It's like two miles off the Mexican border on the other side of Juarez. And he's like, Man, I'm going down there, there's nobody really recording. Like it's the biggest residential recording complex in um in the world. It's called Sonic Ranch. Wow. So they have like places for you to stay. They have, you know, where you can eat. Like they have cooks that cook every day on, on site. And so once you get there, you don't really have to leave, you know? So me and a good friend of mine, Les, Ellie Dollarsign, he's a rapper uh, from Houston as well, um, by way of uh, Louisiana. And uh, his videographer and photographer, Georgie, we all, you know, we rode out together and we just isolated ourselves out there for a couple of days. and. He and I worked on an album together. Georgie shot a couple of videos for us. So um, just staying productive. But my new single drops this weekend. Like I have a new single. Uh, me and Manny Fresh from Cash Money uh, recorded an album together. So the first single for that is supposed to, we're trying to get it out this weekend for Memorial Day. Wow. Awesome. I saw you had, uh, you post on your Instagram four days, 10 songs, and two videos that yeah. you just put out. Man, as a, uh, and that's all been from from that home studio, the residential studio. Yeah, yeah, the place out in um, West Texas. What? Uh, what's? Can you give us any info on the single with Manny Fresh coming out? Yeah, the single with Manny Fresh and me is like some down home kind of music, like it's kind of halfway blues, halfway country western. Maybe I think is the closest way to explain it. But it's called Hold Down, and it's just about 
you know, just about cookout weather. Like, like what would we be doing right now this time of year on Memorial Day weekend? We'd all be at some big cookout, you know, hanging out with family and friends, watching the old folks try to dance and the kids out kind of running around and stuff and just trying to, you know, make people remember what it was like kind of before COVID. And I know some people are still going to find ways to get together and commune or whatever, but, you know, it's just, um, it's just a song that to me kind of reflects what this time of year is all about, whether you, you're stuck at home or not, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I know I've been staying busy at home uh, watching your club trill DJ sets on, on the weekends. Can you talk about those? And are you still doing those as we move forward? Yeah, this weekend was the first time I didn't do it because of where I was and it just it wasn't conducive to doing it. But um, club trail is, <clears throat> is something me and my wife came up with as a way of just kind of entertaining ourselves and trying something because, you know, a lot of people were just kind of DJing online or whatever, a lot of the DJs. I'm not, I'm not really a DJ, but I do have like an extensive music collection. So I thought I would share some of my musical tastes um, and catalog with people, you know. So just a way to have fun, entertain, and engage with the fans right now. And um, I thought it would be kind of ill for people to see Bun B playing UGK music and like a lot of traditional Houston stuff. So we did that. And then we did some, um, you know, some uh, old school New Orleans bounce music type of stuff. Just a way to just stay energized and have fun. But it's been cool, man. We've been having people support us. People have been engaging and enjoying the the music and the the you know the the party that we're kind of putting together. We had got some love from D Nice. D Nice is a good friend of mine. Everybody knows he's been doing a lot of the online DJ stuff right now. He's the guy that kind of kicked it off for mm -hmm. COVID uh, DJing, and uh, so he sent a lot of his people over to watch me DJ one night. So we had like twenty five people too, and then. Um, like give or take, you know, so over the night we had like 10,000 people that wow. had came in and partied at, at Club Trill. So it's just a fun way to pass the time. And I'm really DJing for Queenie more than anything because she's the person that kind of dictates what music we're going we're gonna to play that night. But it's been fun, man. People have really been enjoying it. And uh, I hope to get back to it this weekend. Awesome. Yeah, what time have you been doing that? Uh, usually from 10 to 2 on Fridays and Saturdays. And then We'll do like maybe a Sunday day party edition sometimes between like two to five or like four to six, something like that. While yeah. the sun's up. Awesome. Awesome. How was, I've never been to Marfa myself. Anybody can see on your Instagram, a whole bunch of pictures of you outside of the mini target and all that. Uh, what was yeah. that experience like going to Marfa? It was tight, man. It was somewhere that I wanted to go for a long time, but I just don't end up in that part of Texas very often. So like, it's it's generally generally between here and El Paso, you know what I'm saying? It's, but it's off the road a little bit. But we were like, man, we're all the way out here. You know, we might as well, we might as well go for it, man. But I'm, I'm glad I went to see it, man. It's uh, it's this little slice of Americana, you know? Yeah. Like so a lot of it is kind of untouched, but then a lot of it is also modernized. There's a lot of art galleries, and um, you know, coffee shops and stuff like that. So it's cool, man. It's it's. It's kind of the old and the new coexisting at the same time. But, uh, you know, if, if you're in the area, you're within at least an hour's drive of it, man. I definitely recommend people stopping in the market and checking it out. Great, great. Again, if you're just joining, uh, we're going to be reviewing The Last Dance here in just a minute and talking about uh, some of Bun's classic songs as well. Uh, I did want to give another shout out to this hat. Uh, this is the, <laughs> uh, the Trill OG Astros. Uh, World Series champs edition, and you can talk about asterisks all you want, but I, I still think they earned the championship. So, oh, as you can see, I got my hat with uh, where I got my Rockets finals, which they didn't want to talk about on the last <laughs> dance, and then I got our, our World Series trophy right here. So, this was actually a gift to me from uh, Everlast, awesome from House of Pain. Wow, speaking of gifts, um. I saw on your Instagram you just posted a photo of some shoes that you got from the Jordan family. Do you have those sitting around? Yeah, yeah. So these are the uh, – this is the Jordan Center Court. This is a shoe that was um, – it's featured on the documentary. Um, but this shoe never released. So it was, a, it was a concept that they came up with, but they ended up never releasing this shoe. Um, but they seeded it out to people who are – parts of like Jordan family or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. They sent it out to us all, but I wasn't here to get it. So they sent it to us before it aired in the documentary. 
but awesome. I didn't, I wasn't here to get it, so I didn't I didn't see it till yesterday. How many pairs of Jordans do you have? Oh man, maybe a hundred, hundred and twenty, something like wow. that. Wow, wow, yeah. Well, uh, see, that's easy. That's easy, and that's only because my nephews have taken a lot of my shoes, and friends <laughs> have taken a lot. Like Ralph G has probably about thirty pair of my Jordans at his house. Because every time I move. Um, I usually end up with a lot of product at my house, a lot of Jordan wear and a lot of different stuff. And sometimes when guys help me come and box up my sneakers and stuff, I'll let them take a pair. Yeah. Hey, if you got any exercise, 10 and a half, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I could use a few. Um, do you have, so um, I know you're a big sneaker guy and Sneaker Summit in Houston, you're a big part of that. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely something that we'll talk about, you know, with Jordan. Obviously, he changed the whole culture there. Um, you got any other pairs of Jordans that you want to show off today? Um, just some of the, the regulars. I got some newer, like, weirder stuff, but I don't have them, like, in front of me. But I pull out, like, shoes that are typically associated with Michael Jordan. So, of course, this is the Jordan 1. This is the actual um, Black Toe Edition. I kind of beat these up. Um, I had an older pair, but I beat them all the way up. The, the sole came apart on those. These are like the 2016s, I want to say. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wear these, you know, I, usually in the airport. I kind of beat these up a lot. Um, but this is a uh, this is a silhouette that's, you know, highly identified as, you know, uh, Jordan. Not just a Jordan shoe, but shoes that you saw Jordan playing in. Mm -hmm. um, this is probably most people's favorite Jordan. This is the uh, Jordan 3 Black Cement colorway. Um, these are older pair as well. Um, I probably beat these up and had to put them back together. You can see the sole is falling apart on this one. I've had them for, for a while now, and uh, they're hanging on by a thread. But this is like my, um, like if I got to go to Kima or something like that and get some seafood or just running errands, this will typically be the type of shoe I put on. Um, even if it's not this style, it's the three. The Jordan 3 is my favorite shoe. And then this is the shoe that a lot of people love. This is the Jordan 11, um, the bread colorway. This is probably the single most, well, I'd say in the top five most popular silhouettes and colorways of Jordans. Um, mm -hmm. As far as a the company, they have never produced and manufactured as many pairs of a shoe silhouette and colorway as they have this. Mm -hmm. So they made more pairs of this particular colorway and silhouette than they have of any other Jordan shoe ever. Wow. Awesome, man. Uh, yeah, your shoe collection definitely would put mine to uh, to shame. And then some. But um, a lot of people say I'm cheating because I'm affiliated with the brand. But like the three and the Jordan one, like I bought those for myself and a lot of stuff. I I, I still buy shoes, even though I'm I'm seated shoes. I still yeah. buy shoes because you know sometimes um, I don't I don't wait to see if they're going to send me that particular model. I'll buy it just in case they don't send it, and then I'll already have it, and then end up with a second pair when they send me something. So they just did that with a pair of um, it was this shoe, but in purple, black, and white. And so I wasn't sure if they were going to send me the shoe, and so I, I bought the shoe, and then I ended up with another pair in the mail anyway. So I ended up with two <laughs> pairs of the shoes. So I'm going to probably beat one up, like wear it to death, and then keep the other ones on ice. Yeah, it's good to be a part of the family, I guess, in that regard. You know. Um, uh, so, you know, mentioned being that, being part of that, uh, Jordan brand, brand Jordan family. Um, I know you've gone up to, I think some of the birthday parties and, and things like that in the past have, how many times have you met Michael Jordan? Twice, twice. And the reason I haven't met him more than that is because I don't play golf. Like I get invited <laughs> to the golf tournaments all the time. And that's the place where you typically would get a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with Mike if you play golf, but I don't play golf. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that's that's pretty bad for me. But I met him the first time in uh, All-Star Weekend after Katrina in New Orleans. And then I met him again uh, here for All-Star Weekend. Mm. And uh, both times I had somebody that didn't know how to take a picture take my picture, and they fucked both <laughs> of them up. So no picture with Mike then, I guess, huh? Yeah, no. Nah, nah, they both came out blurry both times. Like, it breaks my heart. Yeah. I mean, he's just on such another level, um, you know, as, as an icon, which I think is something the last dance really showed. I mean, almost, you know, seems to me like, you know, Michael Jackson status 
the way people were yelling his name and, and everything. Um, but yeah, any, uh, how were your interactions with him? Was it pretty brief? Yeah, pretty brief, man. But, you know, it's good when Jordan tells you thank you, right? Because I do a lot of things for the brand. I, mm -hmm. I've given lectures for Jordan Brand. I've performed. I've done a lot of different things um, with the brand during All-Star Weekend. They'll bring me out to different All-Stars and have me host certain events or, like, give lectures or interview people and stuff like that. So I've done a lot of work for the brand. And just to be appreciated um, by Mike is, is a big deal, you know? Um, yeah. Absolutely. Super courteous and super kind when I met him, you know, I didn't, you know, he, he made sure I was comfortable in the space as comfortable as you can be in the company of Michael Jordan. But um, no, I mean, he just seemed like a really great guy. Yeah. Know? Well, I want to dive into the the last dance series with you. I was excited about um, getting a chance to review this with you. Like I said, I, you know, I've seen you on first take on ESPN a few times you know, repping the Texans and Astros and Rockets. I know you're a huge sports fan in general and just given yeah. your uh, affiliation with the brand. And I know you're you're a big um, a big movie guy as well. You know, you're really in, into film, a cinephile, as they say. Um, so I figured you'd really have appreciated this series. Um, I got a few specific questions for you but uh, about the series. But to start off, just what were your thoughts overall on The Last Dance? I think it's it's a one-of-a-kind documentary, right? I think the amount of footage that they had um, that was unreleased in these different behind the scenes scenarios that we've never seen before, right? It's not just about reviewing old games and have people talking about old games. Like you, you see a much more personal side of Michael Jordan, which um, I guess, you know, for whatever reason, we've never really been able to see before. And so mm -hmm. a lot of people give their own kind of take on Mike, right? People have their own preconceived notions about how he is, who he is, and what he represents. And Jordan has always been this this mythical creature, right? We've only seen him in execution mode, right? We've only seen him on the court, like kind of playing the game. And he's always been a very solemn, uh, quiet guy, right? Um, off the court, he's kind of kept to himself a lot. So we get to see Jordan's sense of humor, right? We get to see Jordan super happy. We get to see him, see him pissed off, right? We get to see different things that he's concerned about, like, you know, interactions with, with the front office, right? Interactions with other teammates, interactions with his contemporaries, his opponents, right? Um, some of those things were a little bit overblown. Some of them, they actually, you know, in the case of Isaiah, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they they didn't like each other right like they don't like each they, other yeah <laughs> yeah and i think that's more visible now than ever like you kind of got the gist of it during that era but now you can really see that even all these years later there's still a little bit of contempt i think between those guys you know what i'm saying but that's what competition is about you're not going to like everybody that you play against and you're going to need that cutthroat mentality in order to get past some of these dudes but i think just seeing like mike off the clock Right. I think was a I think that was a big deal. And mm -hmm. I don't know how many more opportunities we'll have in sports to do this again, because I think so much of modern era, this modern era of, of basketball and sports in general is so heavily documented. Right. It's documented by the team, like athletes have personal videographers that follow them around. Right. Social media. Yeah. Social media, YouTube is all this different footage that's available, but this kind of stuff was like just just under lock and key for years. Mm -hmm. And I think the assumption of it was that Jordan wasn't going to allow a lot of it to be seen. But I heard an interview the director did, and Michael made himself extremely told him he could ask whatever question he wanted to ask, you know, and he was willing to answer him, honestly. And so now I think there's, there's um, all these different unanswered questions that we might have had about Jordan and his era and his reign and, like, the way he worked his way to these three-peats, right? I think we have that information now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I saw something that – I read something that said that uh, he decided to allow them to make the movie the day that LeBron clinched that championship over the Golden State Warriors, and he was like, all right, it's, it's time. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, it, which – I still don't think there's an argument there, but I could understand why he would want his 
his legacy better clarified, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I need people to see that, yeah, this guy's won, won a couple of championships and he's done his thing, but there's a big difference between the way he did it and the way I did it, you know? Right, yeah. Um, you know, I think he just wanted clarity for his legacy from for people, you know, the younger fans who weren't maybe a part of it. And I think it's super educational. I think it's super informative. And I think it kind of separates him from the rest of the guys even more so now. Like, there shouldn't really be a question mm -hmm. about yeah. Jordan's legacy right now. Yeah, I thought it was crazy. I mean, from the start of the series, when first playoff game against the Celtics, that all-time great team, you know, he went out – or what was it, the second game, he scored 63 points against them, you know. And it's just like every time in the biggest moments, he would step up. Uh, what do you remember about Mike as a player, as a fan back in those days? Just the fact that it never seemed like he didn't give everything, right? Even with mm -hmm. the games that he lost, right? There's never – you never see – like Mike not give it give it everything he's got, you know. Um, I think when they talk about when um when Pippen gave up, right? In that series, I think just the the entire, you know, idea to Mike of somebody quitting on their team, right? Was like that was that wasn't that was unthought of for him, mm -hmm. you know, and he and you know, he was like, you know, I think, you know, Scotty's never gonna be able to live this down. And I think he's right. When people see you give up and quit in certain scenarios, it's hard for people to get over that, you know? And I think that's the one thing that Mike always wanted to be able to say, that whether it was win or lose, he wasn't a quitter and he didn't give, did not give everything to the situation, you know? And I think you see that in this series more than anything, right? Because we see a lot of guys from a lot of different teams in many sports, right? Get so far, get so close, and then just, um, just kind of give up on themselves and on the team in the moment. But uh, I don't think there's any scenario where you see Mike not giving it 100%. Even when he was sick, you know, we used to call it the flu game. It's really more of a food poisoning game now, we know. <laughs> and um, But even still, like, he, he goes out with, with food poisoning, play better than people with 100% health. You know, he's just not a quitter. And I think that's personified in games like that and in the documentary like this. Yeah. Well, speaking of the flu game, I always thought or heard that he was hungover for that game. But they seem to be pretty adamant about the pizza story. I don't, I don't know if I believe that, that pizza story they were telling. Well, I, he doesn't, you know, I, I can see Mike being a drinker, right, and enjoying his life, but he doesn't seem like, like that, that reckless, right? Like, I can see Mike wanting to wind down and, uh, you know, cut loose a little bit, but not to the point where I think he would get, like, super drunk and still be hung over the next day, right? Like, I don't see Mike doing something purposely that would deny him the ability to give – the game all that he got you know yeah yeah no that's a, that is a good point I don't know the pizza story I saw the guy came out and said allegedly the person who delivered the pizza said he was a Bulls fan and he doesn't know why they made all that up but either way I mean he was definitely sick and under the weather and I mean just he rose to the moment you know yeah like like I, I, I don't know if we'll ever really know what 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 the problem was there but what we do know is even though there was a problem he fought through it yeah, we got some comments here. Uh, someone said that MJ would never cheat like the Astros. I'm just going to ignore that. Uh, we got a lot of good trolls. Yeah, a lot of people saying RIP Pimp C. Um, somebody asked uh, where they can get this hat. That hat's Are they still gone. making these? That hat's gone. Like, if you don't have it now, you can't get it. And this hat is a one-on-one. -one. Like, you can't get this one anyway. They sold a variation of it but it didn't have all these different things on it. So Everlast had them put some extra yeah. stuff on it, but it doesn't get more Houston than this. Like you see everything that's on here. Yeah. Even with the, the slab, you see Pimp C, Rap -A -Lot Records, the Oilers logo, the Old Rockets logo. So, I mean, we're, we're all in right now. I love it. I love it. Yeah, we're going to get into um, some talk about Pimp C and some of your songs towards the end of this. Uh, again, if you're just joining, we'll be posting the full version of this video. Uh, and the audio on YouTube, and then the audio will be on um, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts as well to listen later. Um, so talking about The Last Dance here, the series just ended on Sunday. Um, what did you think about the Rockets uh, not being featured almost at all in this whole documentary? I mean, I, I understand that it's a Jordan basketball documentary, and that I can understand them not wanting to – put too much into what was going on in basketball 
kind of why he wasn't there. But they were quick to put the Stockton shot in, right, that eliminates the Rockets. And I'm like, well, if that's the only thing you're going to show about the Rockets, the two-time champions, I, you know, I right. could, have been, could have been a little bit more. But, I mean, it's obviously not their job to show other teams being successful, right, unless they played and beat the Bulls, right? Right. So that's the only time that kind of thing even it was shown on here. But, you know, that kind of goes that, – that's par for the course of Houston when it comes to sports and sports media. We never really get the mention that we're supposed to get. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people will say that Rockets would have never won those championships in 94, 95 if Jordan was still playing. But, I mean, you look at how dominant Akeem was, you know, during those playoffs, during those seasons. I mean, I, I would have loved to see that matchup. Uh, I did love what they said uh, when they were talking about the draft, how, um, you know, everybody kills the Blazers for taking Sam Bowie over Michael right. Jordan, but nobody criticized the Rockets for taking Akeem number one. No, no, not at all. I mean, you know, coming out of college, he was, you know, he was that guy, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, we could, you could argue whether or not we should have picked up another player um, with further picks, but not with, not, not with that first pick. I mean, he was, you know, he was straight out of U of H, right, to represent the city and um, for the opportunity for the local team to pick the number one local guy from college. I think it's it's a no-brainer. And it's not just like a, a novelty pick. Like, he's actually, a, you know, he's, 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 he's the right player for the team. He's the he's a position that we need. Um, and, I mean, you know, I mean, we didn't need that. We didn't need a, a guard, you know? Yeah. Like so, I, I mean, I'm I'm happy, man. I'm I'm happy. I think the Rockets feel like they made the best play. But yeah, it would have been nice to see a little bit more. Yeah, at least about Elijah Wan as a player, if not the team as a whole in a championship. But maybe about Elijah Wan as a contemporary, you know? Man, yeah, you know, I, I grew up in the Seattle area until I was about seven years old and was a lifelong SuperSonics fan. Um, you know, until they moved the Sonics to Oklahoma City. Uh, and so I remember those Sean Kemp, Gary Payton teams, and that was hard for me to watch that, you know, to watch them just get tossed aside by Jordan in the finals. But that was one of the craziest things to me about this whole thing is just all the Hall of Fame players that he just totally left in the dust. You know, you talk about Charles Barkley never won a championship. Clyde Drexler got one with the Rockets, but not with the Blazers. You know, Carl Isaiah Thomas. Thomas ended his run. I mean, he, he just totally owned the whole decade pretty much, you know. Yeah, and I mean, you know, people argue about the level of competition, but I don't know how you get a higher level of competition than the people he played against, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are some of the people, best people ever to play a game, like play the game. They were in their prime. And, uh, but Jordan was just a different beast. You know, he just simply was a different beast. And yeah. I'm glad that this film kind of gives people who didn't live through that era a better perspective on why people who did watch him play in that era, feel the way that they felt. You, know, you get to watch him play such a dominant level of basketball against some of the perennial greats of the sport, you know, and guys whose reputations are very solid and who should never be downplayed for their abilities, but they were just playing against a different level of player at that time. Mm -hmm. Speaking of different beasts, what did you think about Dennis Rodman? I think Dennis Rodman came off looking very good, right? I think, <laughs> I think nowadays people only – see Robin on a certain level and I think his um his proximity to North Carolina uh, North Korea is kind of awkward for people right. but in that moment at the time you know Dennis Robin was a rock star you know what I'm saying he was he was on a championship team he was banging Carmen Electra like I don't know I don't know how better of a life you could be living <laughs> at that time you know and and that's she's not his only conquest like Dennis Robin had a really really good life out here you know but I think I think the drinking's gotten to him a little bit, you know. Um, so he's kind of a social pariah right now. But you can't take anything away from Dennis Dennis Robin as a basketball player and and living that rock star life. He lived it to the fullest. Some of us will live a hundred years and will never have a good three four year run like Dennis Robin had ever. Yeah, uh, we got a comment from Colin Sheldon. She said she I did too. She said Robin looks so normal and cool. I agree. He looked a lot more normal. Uh, you know, before he's gotten to where he is now. And I just – I forgot that he went to the WCW thing in the middle of the finals. You know, when I saw that, my first reaction was like – my first thought was he's putting 
Rob Gronkowski to shame, you know? Like, right. And, and I feel like people, you know, I feel like that's something that would never happen now. Right. Like they're not going to allow LeBron to go to the MTV awards or something in the middle right. of the finals, you know, but I mean, let alone Vegas or wrestling, you know, right. You know, but I, I mean, to his credit, man, Phil really understood his team. He understood his players and he knew like, look, if I want this guy to be able to do what I expect him to do on game day, I've got to let him kind of recharge, right. Rejuvenate himself and kind of get some of this stuff off of him so he can focus on himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought the Phil Jackson stuff was, was pretty crazy too. the end where he, had all the players write something down on a piece of paper and they, they burned it. Um, you know, I, you always hear about the Zen master, but I didn't realize yes. quite how far the lengths he went on all that. And it was a good thing that they were receptive too, right? Cause guys could have, could have very easily been like, no, nah, I'm not doing all that kind of stuff. But, but I think Phil, you know, Phil is like the, he's the basketball whisperer, right? Like he, he knows how to talk to men, right? There's a lot of ego, a lot of pride that comes with people playing professional sports and um different guys respond as being a lot loud and authoritative and some guys respond to the cooler headed kind of people and i think that you know phil was was exactly the kind of coach that that team needed right and i feel like as long as mike was receptive to it the other guys would be receptive to it as well and yeah they knew that they had a coach that understood them, understood the game, understood how it needed to be played um, before they even got in the arena, right? And the way that they were, he put them in a position to handle it, right? To handle the stress and everything that comes with it. And it just goes to show even more so that he really is, like, he's the goat of coaching. But mm -hmm. it makes, you know, makes perfect sense that the goat of coaching coached the goat of the sport. Like, it's, it, it just all works together. Yeah. Uh, we got... Somebody commented that we need to jam some diamonds of wood in the background. So I'm going to try to play that here on my computer as we're talking. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I felt kind of bad for Jerry Krause and this whole thing. I mean, clearly Jordan was, not, was never a fan of his and uh, he's not alive to defend himself. But, man, uh, they came off pretty rough on him. But Yeah, he was a whipping boy for sure. For yeah. And it's such a – you know, it's such an alpha male environment, right? And you kind of have to be in a position to stand up for yourself. Like, that was a big thing about, like, with Kerr, when he was, like, kept messing with Kerr, messing with Kerr, and then Kerr kind of, like, you know, punched at him, you know, and the Jordan mm -hmm. punch fought him back. Like, you got to be willing to stand up for yourself when you're around all these alpha male mentalities, you know? And I just feel like Jerry, um, I feel like they got off on the wrong foot and it never got corrected, you know? I feel like, Jerry didn't understand that the front office has its place, but these are the players that are actually playing the game that kind of dictate what this team looks like, right? And all you have to do, your job, is not to get in their way or complicate things for them, but to put them in the best position to perform in a way that necessitates them being what you want the team to be, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that he was, I don't think he was, I don't think he was willing to kind of fall back, right? And you're really supposed to stall those kind of dudes out. Let them be who they need to be. Let them talk about what they need to talk about, but still make smart decisions. And I just, I think he didn't really take a lot of shit into perspective when it came to dealing with Michael Jordan and the importance of Michael Jordan to the Bulls franchise and eventual legacy. Yeah. Yeah, we had a comment here from Vish P834 on our Instagram live. It says, you got to be a bit of an asshole to be the greatest that's just the way it works. Well, I, you you do have to have a fuck y'all mentality, right? Like to to when to get to that level, you do have to be a guy that's like, yo, I know we're cool with that dude. I like him as a person and all that, but man, fuck that dude. We need to win, and so I need to get him out of the way. And if everybody's not focused on winning and supporting the people that are playing on this team right now, then fuck them too. And sometimes that goes for the front office as well. You know, everybody has to be supportive. And I feel like I, I feel like he didn't, you know, outside of ownership, he didn't really feel that level of support from anybody else in the front office. But he's mm -hmm. like, fuck it, I'm gonna just take control of what I can control, which is what happens on the court. And if they can't fall in line, well, fuck them. Yeah. The last thing for me on on the last dance, you know, I I thought that in that last episode, I thought that Leonardo DiCaprio cameo in the locker room was super random, but good for so him. So it was Steinfeld, I feel like, right? 
Yeah, yeah, Seinfeld too. Um, but I mean, that that speaks to the celebrity, you know, the magnitude of Jordan's celebrity, I think for sure. I mean, he had commercials being directed by Spike Lee and, you know, he didn't he do it. He did music videos with Michael Jackson, you know. I mean, he was the top. But, but I loved what he said um, at the very end. I mean, he is kind of portrayed to be like a little bit of an asshole during this whole thing. I think Jordan even said that. And I think he's interviews. good with that. I think he's good yeah, with that. Yeah, but I but I loved what he's. I mean, I think you did see the human side of him. With uh, was it John Wozniak, the guy with the curly mullet who he was playing quarters with, and also yeah. Gus, the security guy, uh, who was like a father figure. But I loved what he said in the last episode that the whole thing he said it started with hope, you know, and that's where he started his whole career. Uh, and they flash back to that um, that interview with him as a rookie, saying he hopes to bring championships to Chicago. I think just the confidence of Jordan is one of the things that jumped out to me the most that he just kind of willed himself to where he was in his career. I think he set an extremely high standard for himself. And I, I think um, without putting his foot in his mouth, he did try to paint himself into a corner where there was really the only thing there was to do was to win, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, to put that kind of pressure on yourself, and then feel the need to always live up to it. And then you get the championship. It's like, okay, well, now I want another one, right? And then I want another one. And then to do so much in the sport where you feel like there's almost nothing more you could do that you kind of walk away in your prime, right? It's, it's unheard of, you know? Uh, it's really only been like him and maybe like Jim Brown or something like that where guys have walked away at, at the top of, uh, of their potential. Right. But – I think it 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 allows us it allows us to see him from a very human level, right? Before he becomes the Michael Jordan that we know him to be, he wanted to be that guy. Like that's who he wanted to be. He wanted to be great, and he wanted to bring his team with him, and he wanted to do it for the city. Like you know, that's kind of that's that like JJ has that same kind of mentality, right? Like JJ Watt, he wants yeah. to be great. He wants to perform at a high standard, but he wants to do it also for for the city, right? Like, J.J.'s very Houston-centric to not be from here, right? But he, mm -hmm. like, everything he does is to make sure that Houston is seen as the greatest uh, city in the world. And I feel like that's the kind of drive and initiative that Jordan had, you know? He was able to, to excel exactly to the level that he wanted to, which is very rare, you know? But it came from a good place. So it's like he couldn't be as much of an asshole as people wanted to make him out to be because it wasn't all selfish, right? It wasn't just for him, but he had high hopes for his team, his, his fellow teammates and for the sport. Yeah. Um, some more comments here. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Somebody said Bill O'Brien is Jerry Krause with zero talent. Um, someone else says it was good to see Jordan's beautiful children now. Love to see his family in the stands during the game. I agree. That was really nice. Um, one last thing. I got to ask you this. this. is a little off uh, off the script, but have you ever seen that Chameleon Air story about Michael Jordan or ever talked to Chameleon Air about his story where he met Michael Jordan? That he yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think you can catch anybody at the wrong moment, right? I just think that his interaction probably didn't go the way that he felt it should have gone, right? Because we all have this idea of what it would be like when we meet our heroes. Uh -huh. now, I've had a couple of situations where I met people that I looked up to greatly and it wasn't the best interaction in the world. But I don't let that kind of thing stop me from being what I'm trying, trying who I'm trying to be and where I'm trying to go. I don't think it stopped community at all. I think it was just very disappointing for him to finally be in the space and the company of somebody that he's wanted to be around all his life and to just not have that interaction go the way he wanted it to go. It's, it can be fucked up. I've had that happen a couple of times too. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, cool. I want to get into uh, – we got about 20 minutes left, 15, 20 minutes, and I want to talk about um, some of your iconic songs. But before we do that, um, what else have you been watching on TV during this whole thing? Well, I mean, I saw Tiger King, like everybody else. That was pretty interesting to see. <laughs> I also saw the um, Don't Fuck With Cats, which I, I found out I was a little late on that one. I don't know if you've seen that. I hadn't seen it. Yeah, don't fuck with cats. It's pretty, it's pretty deep. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. It's about a guy that's killing animals online, and people try to stop him, and it grows into this whole 
other type of thing that he's doing out in the world. I don't want to give too much away, but you, it'll, it'll, it'll fuck with you, right? And I realized that apparently it came out around the holiday season, so a lot of people had already saw it before I saw it. But mm -hmm. man, that that's a wild one. That's mm -hmm. definitely a wild one. I love it, man. Have you seen uh, Waco? No, no, I haven't. Actually. Really good I, I one. I see it, and I like the people that are in it. Michael Shannon is in it, and um, I just haven't gotten around to watching it right now. Yeah, I highly recommend it, especially if you're, you know, in Texas and Waco um, about the Branch Davidians and David Koresh. It's crazy, man. I didn't know a lot of that stuff, um, but I just finished that recently. Um, I wanted to ask, um, you know, along those lines, we've all been spending a lot of time at home, obviously – there's been a lot of people have been affected and I know it's, it's hurt your um, ability to perform like you normally would and things like that. But what are, um, what are some silver linings maybe that you found through the whole COVID-19 process and positives through the whole experience? Well, you got parents and, and children like eating again together, right? Like family dinner around the table, um, you know, things that, you know, maybe couples or parents have tried to avoid that kind of been forced to address it. Right. And I think a lot of people have, are on better pages because of that. Not everybody, because I hear a lot of people are starting to get divorced as well. But I mean, my wife and I are always around each other anyway. Right. And so it's it's been cool for us. But I do enjoy like having the grandkids over even more than normal. Uh, engaging with them from an education standpoint, like my wife had to do. Um, had to basically teach my grandson's class to him one day. <laughs> That's been different, right? But I just think that everybody kind of detaching from the world and like um, detoxing off of everything and just really getting to know themselves better, you know, which is, I guess, maybe easier for some people to say than others because a lot of people are home and really can't afford to be home right now and not being able to work. And so we do a lot of stuff. Um, with my organization and with the Altus Foundation and different people like that to try to help people out there. But I do think, you know, in Silver Lining, people are really starting to have conversations that need to be had right now. And they're spending time with people that they need to be spending time with. And I feel like it, it, it gives us an opportunity to bring families back together, right? And, you know, a lot of times, you know, parents leave for work in the morning and they don't, you know, couples, you know, they'll leave for work in the morning and they, they come home at night and, they really only spend four or five waking hours during the week with, with their partners. And so now you're in a position to spend more time with each other and, you know, talk about different things, maybe work through some things or come into a common understanding. But yeah, I just, I really just enjoy, like, I love to work. Don't get me wrong. I'd be super happy if I could get back out there and get back on the road and stuff. But um, I'm enjoying like just kind of being at home, relaxing. Like yeah. I, I like it. I know during normal times, um, you're always out at, at shows around the country in Houston, um, you know, backstage, side stage, on stage, supporting other artists. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it always amazes me how many different artists you're connected with and how many people you hear in interviews paying tribute to you or Drake talking about you in his songs, um, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce, friends of yours. But so I'm curious um, who are some up and coming artists um that you've got your eye on uh from houston uh there's a kid don tolliver he's signed with uh to travis scott's record company he's got a really good project out right now he was actually going to be the opening act on tour with the uh, with the artist the weekend mm. but all of that stuff kind of got canceled um there's a kid tisa korean um he's from out here as well uh, i think he was out at prairie View, maybe back home now um he's got like this whole little mop movement so he's got the dance the mop i like him i like what he's doing of course uh maxo cream amazing talent really solid guy uh megan the stallion you know what i'm saying uh tobe who's probably one of the best rappers uh from houston right now so there's a lot of a lot of really good talent gp45 uh pa youngin uh b lean there's a lot of a lot of young mm -hmm. up kind of talent out there from houston at Port Arthur, that I think people should definitely be checking out. PAT. Yes, uh, yeah, well, that leads into what I wanted to close out with. I wanted to talk with you about uh, some of your some of your classic songs and a little bit of what went into those songs. 
Um, so speaking of PAT, um, I want to talk to you about the song Big Pimpin', which you guys obviously featured on with, with Jay-Z. What was that, the year yes. 2000, I think it was. And, um, and of course, PAT is referenced in the chorus of the song. Um, how did that collaboration come about? And, and can you just give some background on, on that song and, and how it all came to be? Yeah, it almost didn't happen um, because uh, Jay-Z had reached out to do a song with Pimp C before that. And um, it didn't really, that conversation didn't go well because it was in the middle of the East Coast, West Coast beef. And so Jay-Z wanted to do a song with Pimp, but he wasn't leaving New York. And Pimp's like, well, I'm not leaving uh, Texas right now. Mm -hmm. So they just couldn't see eye to eye on it. And it comes back around and uh, with the big pimping song. And so, you know, Pimp's problem, what it was, the fact that it's such a different song than what we normally do. And a lot of Jay-Z's audience would be hearing UGK for the first time. And he didn't want people to think that that was what the kind of music that we did. And then hear the kind of music that we actually really do and not be able to connect with it, right? He didn't want people to have the wrong first impression of UGK who didn't know who UGK was. But eventually we all saw eye to eye and we put the song out. And um, I mean, it was literally the biggest song in the world that year. You know what I'm saying? Somebody out here saying Pimp didn't even like Jay-Z. That, that's not true at all. Uh, Pimp and Jay-Z got along very well. Mm. Um, but he didn't want people to get UGK twisted, and he didn't want people to misunderstand who we were and what we represented, you know? Right. And, um, you know, it ended up being, like, the biggest song in the world that year, not just in America. Like, it was the number one record all over the world. No song had ever... I don't think any song had been played on the radio as much as that song got played that year. Like it was mm. really kind of crazy. And yeah. uh, it, it, it opened up a lot of doors for us. Like we had, UGK had a good following up to that point. We had already dropped Riding Dirty, which is still like the quintessential UGK album. Um, and so that was, that was kind of part of what it was. Yeah, two sheet, yeah, two short sets because Pop didn't like, like Jay-Z. And yeah, Pimp wasn't cool with people that Too Short didn't really like. I mean, mm -hmm. the people that, that Tupac didn't like back then, but it, it kind of came around and then they ended up being like really good friends. But initially, no, he didn't want to, Pimp didn't want to do Big Pimpin' because Jay-Z was somebody that Tupac didn't like and Pimp didn't really want to work with anybody that Tupac didn't like. Huh. Man, and your your verse on Big Pimpin' where you start with the big Southern rap impresario, uh, one of my favorite verses of all time. I can remember being like in high school and, uh, and my, one of my favorite lines was, of course, read a book, you illiterate son of a bitch and step up your vocab. Where did that come from? It was honest. I just felt like people didn't extend their, their vocabulary enough to, to, um, to fuck with me. Right. Like that was, that was always my key to separate myself from a lot of, of other individuals was the fact that, you couldn't go as deep into certain things as I could. And you would, you know, if you don't have a really strong use of, of the English language, you're going to revert to cursing all the time. It's going to be fuck this and shit. That's going to always be a bunch of curse words, you know? And so that was my way to kind of separate myself. I'm not going to curse just because I don't have something better to say. Like if I curse is because I mean that in that moment. Yeah. Um, and one of, another song, we're getting comments on a whole lot of your songs, by the way. Uh, and there's a million we could talk through. Um, Another one of your, your big hits with UGK was International Players Anthem, mm -hmm. 2007, which you guys uh, were with OutKast on that song. Yes. 3-6 Three, Three, Mafia produced a song, is that right? Yeah, and they were originally featured on the record, but then the record company wouldn't clear them as artists. Huh. So uh, tell me about the that song and, and how that one came about. Well, that one was kind of different, because like I said, we originally recorded it with 3-6 Mafia, and that was right after 3-6 Mafia won the Oscar. So they were renegotiating a, their artist deal, right? But their artist deal is different from their production deal. And so they got into it with their record companies so the record company stopped them from being featured on other people's artists. They wouldn't clear them. At the same time, we had put a sampler out of the song and the sampler got into Big Boy's hands and Andre 3000's hands separately. And so they asked if there was a way that they could be on the song. And we was like, we were like, yeah, cool, you know? And because of the fact that UGK and Outkast were still on, were on the same record company, we didn't have to get it cleared from, like, we were both on the same record company, so it was already going to be something to be cleared. 
And so um, it just ended up becoming what it was. And that ended up being like one of the biggest records that year as well. It was our first UGK Grammy nomination. We'd been nominated before with Big Pimpin', but that was Jay-Z's record. Yeah. And I know your your album Underground Underground Kings was uh, debuted at number one on the Billboard, uh, was the Billboard yeah. 100. Um, number and- one album in the country of all albums, like not just number one hip hop album, like number one album in the country. Yeah, man, uh, talking about Outkast, even going back and just looking at the lyrics of that song, uh, Andre 3000 just seems so out there. Uh, what what was he like and, and what was it like, what's it like working with him? He's just a very different thinker, right? Like his frame of reference is typically different from everybody else's. Um, and that's what makes him special. That's what makes him unique because he always has this totally different approach um, to music and to songwriting. And it's just fun to see which, which angle he's gonna approach these things from, you know? He's a very deep thinker, but he's also a person that's very lighthearted. And he just wants to make sure that at all time he's separating himself from everybody, right? But mm-hmm. not too much where it doesn't make sense. So mm-hmm. He's been able to navigate the way he chooses to be seen very well. And I think people appreciate him just for that level of effort that he brings, you know. But he's he's one of the best ever. Like he it's 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 funny because he's so good at it, he rarely does it. Which is crazy because usually if you're so good at something, you would kind of stick to that. Mm-hmm. But like now he's teaching himself how to play the flute. Like, you know, he's always been a person to do something different, right? And try to have a different approach to life. But it's one that works for him. He's very satisfied with his life and everything he's been able to do. And, um, and I'm, I'm just happy to have known him and been able to re- record with him and come from the same era that he does. Mm-hmm. I've got one more song for you um, from uh, UGK, the, one of my favorites of yours of all time, uh, from your 1996 album, Riding Dirty, uh, which is One Day. Um, yeah. what's, what's the story behind that song? So One Day was originally a record that um, the artist 3-2, Rest in Peace, had done for his first solo album. Um, But he didn't like it. He felt it was too slow. And so when he was playing us his album, that was like the last song he played. And, you know, Pimple's like, yo, that's the hit record. That's the hit. And he's like, man, I don't even think I'm going to put that on my record. It's too slow. It's depressing. And I don't think that's what people want to hear. And Pimple's like, you crazy. That's exactly what people want to hear. And since he chose not to do it, um, to put that song out, Pimp asked him to give it to us. So if you listen to the song, 3-2's original first verse is still on the record, and then mm-hmm. we finish out the record. But um, you know, that's one of the things that Pimp had, just had an ear for music, and he knew that it was going to be a big record. It was just something that 3-2, who had recorded it and made a great song out of it, but didn't really, didn't really feel it would work. You know what I'm saying? And um, Pimp actually was in a position to prove him wrong on that one. You know? Yeah. And it ended up being like um, like a very real moment, I think, for UGK, right? Because it's a moment of reflection and we think about people that we've lost and the life that we live. And um, it allows people that listen to it to feel the same way, you know? And nowadays when people hear it, they automatically think about, a, you know, a loved one that they lost, whether it was a friend or family member or somebody like that, you know? And, and uh, one of those records that helped us to create a... Uh, a, a closer relationship with the people that we make music for, you know, because it's a real life scenario. It's not like a club thing or a party thing or over exaggerated, over exaggeration about anything. It's just people talking about real things that happen in life, you know? Absolutely. Hey, I got one more question for you, but I'm worried we're going to run out of time. Can we, no, you're, uh, good. you're good. Okay. Can, I might, uh, what happens when you get to 60 minutes on Instagram live? Uh, I don't think it cuts it off anymore. It doesn't cut me off anymore. Doesn't cut it off. Okay, we'll try. I don't have as many followers as you, so I don't know if it counts for people like like me, but we'll see. But um, we're getting a lot more questions, too, about some of your other songs. Um, so I got to ask you one more. One that we're seeing a lot of uh, people seem to be really liking this, the backstories on these songs from the comments on the Instagram Live. Uh, what about Diamonds and Wood? Uh, Diamonds and Wood was, you know, like, you know, obviously the lifestyle in Houston was affected by the screw tapes, you know, and just kind of how the, the, the whole concept of the screw tape and the, the, the impression that it made uh, on people just grew and grew and grew. 
And so Ryan Dirty as as an album is a concept album that kind of deals with like what life is like on in the city of Houston at that time, specifically the south side of Houston. And um that's what Diamonds and Wood is, you know, it's a it's a sample from a screw tape and it's made at a slower tempo and it's just trying to encapsulate what it's like in the streets, what it was like in the streets at that time. And, you know, rolling around, banging screw and just trying to exist. You know, there's a lot of carjacking. There's a lot of beef with the north side and south side of Houston at that time. But uh, we just wanted to make a, a real song that kind of reflected what the feel and the environment of what screw tape made. And so that's how we give diamonds and wood. Mm. Uh, for people who aren't familiar, not from Houston, you know, DJ Screw, obviously, uh, his influence looms so large down here. Uh, I think Screw Day is coming up on, was it June 27th? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's typically the day that people celebrate Screw. Can you um, can you talk about his influence on you? No, I mean, well, Screw is a friend of mine, right? So I feel like uh, well, it's, it's different for me than it is for a lot of other people because most people in Houston didn't have a rap career before Screw. And so mm -hmm. a lot of their their sound and, and the way that they've been able to to relate to people or kind of get their sound out they, is based off of Screw and Screw's, um, Screw's sound permeating through Texas and Houston and all these different places. So I was already kind of making music when I met Screw. And Screw actually um, has the test press for our first record. So when we pressed up our first record, Screw was just like a mixtape DJ at the time. He was he was DJing at his after hours off of uh, MLK and Griggs. And so I would go there and play Dice in the back. And so I went there and brought Screw the record. So Screw was the first person to ever play a UGK record. I gave him the first UGK piece of vinyl. And if you look inside of Riding Dirty, there's a picture of me Pimp and Screw inside the Riding Dirty cover art. And on the wall, you can see the, the vinyl that, that he, he literally pinned it up on the wall in his house. He wasn't even living in that house when I gave him that vinyl. He was still living in a, in a, a Broadway Square, I want to say. Wow. And, uh, and yeah, man, he was just a really good person to know. Super talented, super humble, right? Could have had the biggest record company in Houston, but didn't want to hold his homies back, right? So he allowed everybody that was rapping on his screwed up tapes to go out and get their own respective record deals without feeling the need to be signed to him. He let everybody live. He just enjoyed representing for the city. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to ask you, Von, um, you know, we were talking about One Day um, and some of your other songs at UGK, but um, I wanted to ask you about Pimp C and what it was to you, what it was about him that, that made him so special. I think how serious he took the music without taking himself too serious, I think was the main thing about him. Um, he had probably the best ear for music I've ever seen in my life after all these years of being in the music industry. Um, and he was very serious about UGK in the way that we were presented to people, but he wanted to have a good time doing it. A lot of times guys were in the studio being all super serious and super hard and shit like that. Pimp had a great sense of humor. Uh, he was really fun to be around, you know what I'm saying? He was always laughing. We always had a really good time. We never really argued in the studio or nothing like that. You know, he knew what he was there to do. I knew what I was there to do. We never really bumped heads on anything like that. And, um, but yeah, I think it was just his, um, his approach was so different uh, mm -hmm. musically and personally, you know. Um, so when it came to the music, he didn't play about how people took us and how people tried to, you know, come at us or people felt how we, you know, we put it down or whatever. He wouldn't take any shit off of that kind of a thing, but he was a really, really fun dude to be around, man. We always had good times. And, you know, if there was any one thing I miss right now is really his sense of humor and just hearing him laugh, right? And just being tickled at certain shit, you know? Um, but he was a really, really, really intelligent dude, um, really smart about how to put this thing together. Had a very clear idea of what UGK should look like, sound like, and how we should represent our movement. And uh, he was right on all of that shit. He was, he was head on with that stuff. He, he really understood what his, what his legacy should be. And he was constantly focused on making sure that whenever he was done with the music that he had represented himself and pulled out the Texas the right way. And I think you couldn't have done that any better. Right on, man. Well, RIP to Pepsi and getting a lot of love for him in the comments here on the Instagram live. And, Want to say thanks to you again for for coming on the Scurf Show. Um, we'll post the full version of this up on iTunes, 
and uh, Spotify and then a video on YouTube as well. Um, and you got the single drop-in Memorial Day weekend with Manny Fresh, right? Yeah, it should be this weekend. We're trying to get it out there this weekend. All right. So looking all forward. down. Looking forward to that. And uh, thanks again, Bun. And uh, always a pleasure talking to you, man. And we'll see you around soon. No, nah, thanks, Nick. And then you're gone. The next day you're yeah, gone. One day world we living in man it ain't nothing but drama everyone want a home you're in new york niggas getting shot for bombers now they got your life in the palm of they hand like california niggas with dubs are hydroponic marijuana gang banging got the ghetto hotter than a soda down in orange my nigga box died on the corner behind a funky ass dice game i saw him once before we died wish it was twice man i remember being eight deep off the chucky crib letting us act bad not giving a fuck what we did when we lost him i knew the world was coming to the end and i had to quit letting that devil push me to a sin my brother being in the bin for damn near 10 but now it look like when he come out man i'm going in so shit i walk around with my mind blown in my own fucking zone cause one day you're here the next day you're gone one day